I was trying to, to realize that, you know, the, the economic crisis was 10 years ago. It started in Greece. You know, democracy started in Greece, right? But it was an experiment that kept being changed and manipulated and updated. Chris Dixon says that uh, blockchains are computers that can make promises. You're tuned to the Rcast, where we talk about the blockchain. On the Rcast. And how your data remains. It's the Rcast. Where our drive is the topic. Censorship resistant permanence. Yeah, we got it. What's up, drivers? Welcome to the fifth episode of the Rcast. This week, we've got Peniotis Veronis, whose project Long Access was an early attempt to create uh, permanent storage. And we talk about his work now, how the Greek government debt crisis of late 2009 kind of reinvigorated his love and faith in blockchain. And uh, we talk about his art projects. And we talk about the future of commitment-based storage. Thank you to everyone who started listening to the Rcast this year. Happy 2022, coming up soon. This year, there were a lot of exciting developments. Uh, there was the fiat on-ramp, which made it easier to buy our Weep tokens. We created the price calculator. We revamped the CLI. We launched the Rcast. We rebranded the website. And there was a lot of amazing data I wanted to share. This year, 3.5 terabytes were uploaded on our drive. That's 645,000 files. Woo! 5,000 plus drives were created. 2,000 public, 3,000 private. We had 4,100 total users. And 11% of all of Rweave's data was stored on our drive. And we distributed 235 Rweave token tips to all of the users. And there were 10 core drivers added. Holler. So it was a really, really great year. So thank you everyone for supporting, being part of the project, listening to the Rcast. We want to shout out uh, some of our friends. We want to shout out the NFT shirt contest winners. We want to shout out our friends at Koi. And we started a new series on our drive news called NFT tracker. So we just posted a video last week of NFTs we like. So check that out. But anyway, this is my interview with Peniotis Veronis on the Rcast. All right, friends, welcome to another edition of the Rcast. I'm here with Peniotis Veronis, and he is the creator of many things, including a lot of interesting projects in the blockchain space, uh, Long Access, which was his storage solution, which had an interesting history. So, Paniotis, welcome to the Rcast. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for inviting inviting me. There was that photo you had on your blog, the context of, of why you started Long Access, and you had that picture of your father-in-law in Alabama in 1932, and you made that interesting point that, like, it was amazing that that photo survived physically through the years, but you talked about how it's even more amazing that data survives. So tell, a little, tell us a little bit about that blog, because I think it was an interesting introduction to your projects. Yes. So at the time that I wrote this blog post, my daughter was, I think, two years old. So I had gone through this phase where, you know, you're a young parent a new parent, and uh, you're taking photos of everything that your kid does. Uh, the first time they smiled, the first time they walked, the first time they touched the toy, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, which is, I mean, 
Nowadays, it's very easy. We have our cameras, we have our phones, we take hundreds, probably thousands of photos. It's easy, it doesn't cost anything. But uh, what I was worried about and what I realized is that, okay, I have a big archive of what my daughter did, but the possibility of her finding this archive is very slim because she will probably want to look back at her childhood photos when she's probably in her 30s, in her 40s, when she becomes a mother or something like this. So this means it's in something like 30 or 40 years. And digital archives do not survive that long. I mean, I've been using computers for the last probably close to 40 years. And uh, I know that my first uh, discs, the, the discs that I used in my Commodore 64 <laughs> are long gone. There's no way I can find anything that had in them. Even if I had the disks, I don't have a drive. Even if I had the drive, I don't have the, the computer, you know, all this. Uh, on the other hand, you have a couple of photos, not such a big archive, but there are some photos that there are, you know, in my family for a hundred years, because it's my grand-grandfather, for example. Mm. And it survived because it doesn't need much. And it survived through, you know, wars and <laughs> famine and relocations and uh, a lot of things uh, where our digital archives probably wouldn't. And when you start to think about it, I mean, okay, the, the easy way to, to try to solve this problem of digital archiving is to say, I will make a lot of copies. I will have a, non, a cloud backup, I will have a local backup, etc. But when you try to factor in other things, like, okay, I have a local backup. So what happens if someone breaks into my, ho my home and steals all the electronics? Probably this is the first thing they will steal. They will steal my disks and my computer. Which, okay, uh, it's okay that they stole this, but you don't want to have them to have access to your data, so you encrypt it. And then you realize that, okay, I have encrypted everything, but if something happens to me, no one will be able to access <laughs> this data, on the other hand. And if you take it a bit long, I mean, to a greater extent, uh, another problem is the, the data type and the, the, the programs that you use to consume this data. So if you have a data in a format that is no longer supported in 40 years and it's no longer relevant, even if you have this video file, it will be very difficult to read it, to replay the video. It's like having a Betamax video or something that's like not a, a player that's even hard to find, right? Like formats constantly change is kind of your point, right? Yes, yes. And, and we've all probably all been in the situation where we find an old box full of Betamax tapes in the basement or in our parents' house. And there is something in there that we would probably like to see. But we can't. <laughs> Your point is really good in that blog because you said, well, look at this picture. It survived wars. It survived being transported. But it's a physical object. And so therefore, it kind of 
transcends these limitations of digital media. So you had this idea to create long access. Was this in response to wanting a solution for the saving this data of your family archives? Yes, yes. So what we tried to do with long access, unfortunately, I think it was too early. Uh, the idea was similar to our drive. I mean, the idea was that you would pay in advance uh, a fixed amount to get some storage and you would upload your data encrypted and it will be kept for at least 30 years, I think, was the limit. And we said at least because the projection of the storage costs would probably make it easy or trivial to keep it for longer. If we have, if we manage to keep them for 30 years, then the cost of a gigabyte would be pennies or nothing. <laughs> so right. we said at least 30 years. And what you got back was what we called the certificate, which was a PDF file that you would have to print, that it had on it uh, a code and the key, I think, and some more details, the archive ID, something like this, and the note or something like this. So the idea was that uh, anyone who had this certificate would be able to go to the service, use the information on this certificate to download and decrypt the files. And in that way, we tried to address a lot of the issues that I mentioned before. People were obviously excited about it, right? Well, uh, not really. Um, maybe, I, maybe I didn't find the, the right audience or... It was something that excited some of them, but not a lot of them. I mean, the the, there were a couple of barriers. The first one is that you had to educate someone. That I mean, most people have their data in their mobile phone or on their, in their laptop. It's very often to, to hear someone say, oh, I lost my phone, I've lost all my photos. <laughs> so right. it's something they don't really uh, take the time to, you know, to consider. So there is an educational process and usually the first one that goes, I mean, the first company or the first one to try to do this is paying the cost to educate the, uh, the customers. And the second one that comes <laughs> has a lower cost to, to enter the market because now the customers are educated. They are aware of the problems, of the issues, of the parameters, of the solutions, and they're just they just try to, to choose the best solution. So this was the first one. I think the second problem was that, okay, the, que the question I couldn't answer is, everything you say is great, Panagiotis, but how do we know that you will be here in 30 years, that your company will be here in 30 years? So what I had in mind to do was to once we got to a certain size, I wanted to create a, a non-profit organization or something like this, an organization that would actually 
take all the money that this, the customers paid and be responsible to pay us back every year to do the technical work of maintaining the technical aspect of the, you know, of the service. And uh, the paybacks to the company would be in such a way that the profit would be further in the future. So this year uh, we wouldn't make any money, but next year we would make some money. And as you went forward, uh, the profit would be, be better. So there was a, a motive to stay in business and keep doing, keep maintaining the archives. And if for some reason long access was no longer there, the, this uh, organization would be able, would have the funds to find someone else to do the technical work. Uh, but if I did it today, I would do it with a blockchain contract. Having a storage solution that's based on a commitment means a lot more than the size or the technical components. If you can promise that it's going to be there in 30, even 100 years, then it's it really has a lot of value. And that's what people are trading on now. And, and thinking about the origin of um, decentralized storage and you growing up or you living in Greece, like it makes me think about how, you know, democracy started in Greece, right? But it was an experiment that kept being changed and manipulated and updated. And it seems like the storage solution is a similar thing. And it also is similarly a democratizing sort of technology, the blockchain theoretically, because it takes away the middleman. Now we have the tool, uh, Chris Dixon says that uh, blockchains are computers that can make promises. So this was a problem that we couldn't solve in a technical way five or ten years ago because we didn't have computers that could make promises. Right now we have smart contracts, which is exactly this. I mean, they will do something in the future and you know that they will do it. So if you put money in there, and they are programmed to disperse this money in a certain way, they will do it. As long as the blockchain exists, the contract will keep doing this. The reason why the startup didn't work, there are a lot of reasons. I mean, okay, some of them I already explained. Probably I did some bad decisions in the management of the company. But uh, one of the major problems was, was that at the time, we had to to do a, a next. Uh, we had to plan for our next funding round, and this was the time that Greece introduced capital controls because this was the economic crisis in Greece. And although, even though we were part of the euro, and in theory, uh, money euros can be transferred without any restriction in the European Union. So, you have a car, hard currency, etc. cetera. Uh, Greece had to impose capital controls, which meant suddenly that I couldn't pay for my Amazon servers, I couldn't pay for my Google uh, mail, etc. Okay, all these companies were flexible and they, they gave us some slack and they left us for a couple of months to find a way to pay. But uh, the thing is that... Uh, 
I was trying to find a solution to pay for things I used to be able to pay for. <laughs> Order something from Amazon, a book. Suddenly I couldn't use my debit card or my credit card. And this is when I remembered crypto. Because it was something that I had probably tried earlier on my laptop, you know, download the, the Bitcoin uh, uh, software to mine something or something like this. I didn't pay any attention at the time. But when we had capital controls, I realized that uh, crypto is the tool to, <laughs> to be free, uh, to have financial freedom. I was trying to, to realize that, you know, the, the economic crisis was 10 years ago. It started in Greece in 2010. Uh, yes, 2010. So it's 11 years ago. And I think that we actually said that, okay, it's over about three years ago. And now it's gone. So I think Greece is much, much better now. Okay, the truth is that it was bad, but it wasn't as bad as you see in other places in the world where they have economic crisis. Because even though it wasn't a severe crisis, a severe economic crisis, it was in, the, in a part of the European Union. So it's not like people couldn't find food or the hospitals weren't working. Or Everything was a bit more difficult, sometimes a lot more, but uh, it was, okay, it wasn't as bad as you would see in other countries like, you know, Argentina or places like that where they have uh, a severe economic crisis. People were introduced to crypto in Greece. There is a community, but it's fairly limited, I think. Blockchain, theoretically, right? Like the idea is that if the government can't intervene, it creates more stability. And in, in a sense, it creates solutions to problems that weren't there, like storage solutions or artists getting paid for creating their work. And you, in addition to being a technical person and an entrepreneur, you created the termites.art project. Uh, let's talk about that because you have some cool pieces on there. And it's interesting that you, you're an artist and an entrepreneur. Like, to talk, Let's talk about that project. It's, I think it's pretty cool. This is probably an art project. But uh, at the core of it is uh, something that um, Stephen, Stephen Wolfram is being studying and is being talk has been talking about, which is that there are, I mean, usually when we, when we look around us, we think that complex things come from complex rules. So, I mean, if you have to build a bridge, you think that you probably need a very complex architectural design and a civil engineer who will do complex computations in order to build this bridge. Otherwise, you can just put two pieces of wood and cross the river. Okay, so complexity comes from complex rules and complex design. This is what we think. What uh, a lot of mathematicians have been realizing in the last uh, 100 years or so is that in some cases, we have very, very simple rules 
that can produce very complex results. And uh, this is um, an area that is called uh, cellular automata. And for example, a rule could be, imagine that you're in a square grid and it's one of the squares can have two or three different colors. And you have the rule set that, okay, if you are in color on a square that's colored one, turn it to two and move forward and go right, turn right. If you are in a square that is colored two, uh, turn it to three, move forward and turn left. Something like this. You wouldn't imagine that something like this could create a lot of complexity, but it actually does. So, uh, what my, these are mathematical ideas uh, that are not easy to explain. And most of us do not have the, you know, the, the stimulus or the, the visual tools to talk about them. So, right now, probably your audience will be bored because I'm saying something that doesn't make really sense. It doesn't sound very interesting. But if you see what we're talking about, if you go to termites.art, it's with a U, not T E, T U, from Turing and Ants. It's a, a game of, of the words. So, if you go to termites.art, you will see some of these visual creations which illustrate these things and you will see some very complex patterns uh, that are created by very simple uh, rules. Uh, so this project is trying to provide the visual tools for us to discuss about complexity, where complexity comes from in the world. Uh, what we call Randomness, is there actually, is there anything random, I mean, or is it something that it's too complex for us to understand? Uh, how do we say that something is random or it's not random, it's determined? Uh, things like that. I hope that uh, <laughs> there are a lot of things I, I want to do in this project and I've uh, created a lot of things that are not uploaded yet. But I hope that, I mean, my dream is that uh, it would be something that you could put on your wall and someone would walk by and say, mm, what is this? And you would try to explain to them that, you know, about complexity, you say it, it's complex, but it's generated by a very simple rule. Mm. And uh, this would be the start of a discussion about what, how the universe is created, if it's deterministic, if what we see around us is generated by a very simple set of rules, things like that. Well, it's interesting because I was looking up about this online and I, it was, I, I came upon the Wikipedia page of Langton's Ant, which is kind of connected to the, um, the Turing machine termite project, right? Yes. And this idea that out of chaos... There is beauty, and out of randomness, there is there are patterns, and there's this sort of like structure that emerges inadvertently. And when I think about the blockchain, and I think about the experiments people have made, and everything we're figuring out, I think it's a really apt metaphor for like the human experience right now. Because you know, even though we don't know what we're doing as we figure this stuff out 
there's not like a clear path. It is still kind of beautiful. And that was the metaphor I got from your project. I don't know. Do you see some comparisons with that? Or is that kind of me interpreting these works? No, no, you're absolutely right. And another, another uh, interesting aspect of this area, not my project. I mean, my project is just creating some of visuals of this area of mathematics is, okay, so you see this very complex image that is generated by a simple set of rules. So is the image complex or simple? Because, I mean, if it's something that can be generated by a very simple set of rules by repeating them 10,000 times, you would say that the two things, the rules and the result, are equivalent. So if the rules are simple, the, the result is also simple. So what the Wolfram uh, is saying now is that there is something that he calls mm, computational irreducibility, which in simple words means that, okay, you have to do the work. The rule set may be simple, but you have to do the work in order to get to the result, which is very relevant to blockchain. This is the proof of work. Mm. I mean, the rules are simple, but if you don't do the work, you don't have the result. There is no simple, you know, okay, this is a complex equation, but we can find the shortcut and solve it in one line. You have to do it. <laughs> All 10,000 steps, all 1 million steps. That's like anything in life and like with being a parent, raising a kid, creating a startup, any art, like the meaning is in the mistakes, right? And in the in the wrong path that it's not just about getting the answer right away. And I think that's like a that's like something we can learn about life through this and through your pieces and through your your work and your career. And it's exciting, right? Because I noticed on your blog, on your site, you said, one of the first things you said is, I'm happy with my life. That's like in the first line on your website. (laughs) I am, I am. And it hasn't been easy. I mean, by any measure. (laughs) I've been through a lot. Yeah. Uh, But uh, I'm happy. Penny Yotis, could we talk a little bit about how you learned about the Arweave project? I was writing something about digital preservation or something like that. And one of my followers said that, uh, you know, you should look into Arweave. It's something that I tried to do some years ago and it was early. But I can see, for example, in your website, in the, the first blog post is... A lot of like my first blog post about long access. It's about, you know, someone who is worried that his data will not be, will not survive time. Um, So I would like to, you know, to join or to to be in touch and uh, follow this project. I was thinking about finding a way to, to store my my seed phrases of my crypto wallets Mm. in a way that's encrypted so I can give the I can give a URL or some online pointer URI to my relatives and tell them that you know if something happens to me you can ask 
for the key from my friend John. He will know the key. You will get the data from there and you can decrypt it and so something like that. Yeah, that's a very practical solution, like an encrypted way to store that where it's completely private, right? And and safe and permanent. Yeah, because otherwise, how would you do it? Yeah. If I have it on a digital file on my computer, it's not easy. I, I thought about printing it, but it, <laughs> this would put the burden of typing some uh, encrypted text. <laughs> what does it feel like to be a Greek person who's also part of this technological revolution? Uh, I think that uh, the future is good. It looks good. The young humans that I I get, you know, to interact with are at my daughter's age, which is 10 or 12 years old. <laughs> and they don't care about crypto yet. Right. So I'm not sure what, uh, I mean, you know, if you talk to someone who's 18 or 20 or 25, if it's something, I would guess that it's something that it's not unusual, not something weird. If you want to follow Panyotis, follow him on Twitter at VRYPAN, and his website is VRYPAN.net. That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great interview. Thank you very much, Andrew. I enjoyed it too. All right. Great interview. Thank you, Panyotis. Uh, be sure to keep your eyes peeled on the R Drive social media channels for updates on the next Data Bounty Contest. Be sure to sign up for the email list. And uh, yeah, Happy New Year. We appreciate you all. Let's keep the permanence popping. Know before you stow your data forever. I'm Andrew, and this is the RCast.